0: Welcome to Trainer Talk, the place where negotiation professionals talk shop. My name is Max Bevilacqua. I'm the Chief Negotiation Officer at Max Negotiating, a Harvard negotiation project inspired advisory and training company focusing on the role of technology in contemporary negotiations.
1: Hi, Max. I'm Gwen Krauss, and I've been training negotiation and leadership workshops for 25 years around the world
0: in multiple industries and worked with several training firms, including Vantage Partners, Action Design, as well as my own training and coaching company, Polaris Professional Development. Welcome to this extra episode of Trainer Talk. This week, it's going to be just me. Gwen will be rejoining us next episode. But we do have Dr. Joshua Weiss, who I was really, really, really lucky to meet through the Abraham Path Initiative as we work together on a negotiation course online. Josh, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I'm gonna have to catch my breath before I go into your bio because it's long and I'd like to read it all. Um, But Dr. Joshua Weiss is a senior fellow at the Harvard Negotiation Project, a co-founder of the Global Negotiation Initiative creator and director of Bay Path's MS in leadership and negotiation, board member of Abraham Path Initiative, president of Negotiation Works Incorporated, his consulting firm, and is also the author of a new book, The Book of Real World Negotiations. Um, I also like to add that um, Josh also has this, I believe a series of children's books, which I think are fantastic and brilliant. Um, And after getting TS in difficult conversations, I really think that the book of real world negotiations is a must-have to animate um, the stuff. So I'm very grateful for you to be here because I I know how much you have going on, and just want to say thank you for being here and and welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you, Max. It's it's definitely a pleasure, and uh, and happy to do whatever we chat about because to me, you know, anytime you're talking about negotiation, it's a good time to to be yeah. thinking together and and helping people to think. maybe a little differently about negotiation as well.
0: Amazing. So first of all, I love that. I think that's like the Bob Ross of negotiation, which is any day that you're painting is a good day. Um, And I agree, anytime you're communing with fellow thinkers about negotiation, it's a good space to be. So we're probably gonna go in a lot of directions, but we'd love to start with a story of yours, a negotiation story, whether personal or one you used to teach with um, that you have found instructive in your life.
1: Well, uh, as you might imagine, after a while, there's there's quite a few, but the one that always sticks to me. So I, I worked on a project in the Middle East called the Abraham Path Initiative, uh, full-time for about 10 years, um, trying to help get that off the ground. And as you mentioned, I'm still uh, the chair of the board now of the organization. But the negotiation that, that I want to share is, um, I think, one of my favorites, just because of the context and the situation. And very briefly, the Abraham Path, for those people who don't know... Um, it, it was an effort that was launched by my partner and colleague, William Urey to create a long distance walking and traveling route across the Middle East so that people um, from around the world could come and get to know the Middle East region differently. Uh, and the idea was to try to utilize a figure that, you know, three or four billion people on the planet revere, um, Abraham, and, and walk in, in his footsteps. And so to, generally speaking, follow you know, his route from Iraq to Turkey, down through Syria, Jordan, Palestinian communities, Israel, Egypt, the Sinai, you know, and then on to Saudi Arabia, etc. So, so the idea was a, a grand adventure for sure. And our role uh, in all that was to try to inspire it and to create partnerships and see if we could actually get this thing going. And this story is part of that. So one of my you know, sort of early jobs was actually doing a lot of the negotiations to sort of get this project going and try to build those partnerships, both at the governmental level, at the national governmental levels, then to the regional and local levels, and even sitting in in small villages and in remote parts of the region drinking goat's yogurt, which always made me sick. Um, There's nothing like, if you think goat cheese is pungent, you should have unpasteurized Um, goat yogurt or yeah goat yogurt it's um just this thinking about it again is is giving me the heebie-jeebies but um goat Jesus
0: for me I can't imagine
1: yeah so so this story basically one of the places where we really tried to get the path going there's a place called Haran which all of the sort of monotheistic faiths agree that Abraham heard the call from God to go forth in that place so there's a lot of significance to it and that area is very different from Istanbul or Ankara. You know, when people think about, I was essentially saying that in Haran, you know, all the monotheistic faiths agree that, that, uh, you know, it, there was an important aspect of the Abraham, Abrahamic story there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but essentially Haran is in a place called Erfa, which is a very different part of Turkey. It's not Istanbul or Ankara. It's not, you know, sort of more Western. It's actually much more conservative. It's, uh, much more religiously focused, you know, Turkey typically has fashioned itself as dogmatically secular as a result right. of Ataturk and things like that. So in any event, working there, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, New York City versus a small town in Alabama, right? So okay. we're talking small town Alabama here. Um, so I remember going, uh, we needed to meet with the mayor of Shumli Erfa, who to try to get his support for the project. And we had done a number of things to that point, but we had never quite had a meeting with him. So his name was Ahmed Fakibaba, which really, you know, um, is the best name that I've ever encountered on the path. And um, the day before we went, I was there for, you know, a week to try to work with partners and do some of the mapping work that we needed to do and talk to homestay hosts and all that and the day before we had gone to one of the villages and met with them and had like lunch. And, you know, lunch was in these remote homes. They were mud brick, it was on the floor, you know, kind yep. of a traditional kind of approach to the Middle East in that regard. And, and so getting back to the hotel, um, I definitely started feeling sick and, yeah. which was par for the course. Um, honestly, every time I went, I got sick in some way, shape or form <laughs> um, just because my system was just not used to it at all. Yeah. But so that night I woke up with a massive fever and all that kind of fun stuff. And the next morning I had to go and meet this guy. Um, so, Shanliurfa is a city of, it, it, the region is also called Shanliurfa, it's about 400,000 people. Okay. Um, and then the city um, is, you know, obviously about probably about 75, 80,000 people, something like that, maybe 100. Mm-hmm. Um, A lot of the buildings there are very Soviet-style era buildings, so they're concrete, they're dark, sort of drab, Um, and so I remember going and meeting with him. I was sweating profusely because I was trying to kick this flu or whatever it was that I had, so I was really not doing well, and I remember going into this building and walking down the hall and the lights were kicking on and off to save energy things, you know, all those kind of ambient things that <laughs> you, you, re- you recall as part of a process. And I remember they showed me into the boardroom and it, there was this giant boardroom and he was sitting at one end and there was nobody else in there. It was just him um, and me and he was chain smoking. Um, and I remember him, you know, so I, I went and sat next to him and, and he greeted me very warmly and um you know, there had been a lot of rumors about the project. There was a lot of questions about it, and what was it really about? And you know, um, the Middle East is a fascinating place in so many ways, and one of them is that you know it it tends to be rife with conspiracy conspiracy theories and all kinds of stuff um, that you have to manage as part of a negotiation. And so, you know, a lot of our conversation was around that. And but it was interesting because I I thought, and and this is where I think some assumptions come into play that. I had thought that this was going to be a really tough negotiation and and it turned out that he was like the warmest, gentlest person I had ever met, and was really interested in being supportive. and I mean, we had some moments in our negotiation of the kinds of things that I was asking him to do that you know were were um, difficult, and he articulated why some of those he couldn't do. But I think it was really that you know that just this story and how it all sort of transpired and how it you know unfolded in a way that you know, when you think about your negotiations, you bring a story to the table about what you mm-hmm. think is going to happen. And you know, we had met a lot of tough customers out that way, um, sure. a lot of skeptics. And so I had gone in assuming that this was going to be a really difficult negotiation, and he's probably not going to be interested in working with us. He probably had enough things to do. And it was really the opposite, you know. And, and we forged a really good partnership and bond. Um, so it wasn't the hardest negotiation, but I think it it's one of those that really sticks in my mind um, because of sort of all of the pieces around
0: it and, um, you know, the expectations and other kinds of things that happen. I mean, when you say a Westerner walking into the Middle East with flickering lights, chain-smoking and Soviet-style buildings, right? The first thing we think of is, is likely from our data set and experiences, not warmness. I'm curious about a few things. Um, uh-huh. One, to the extent that you can talk about it, the contents of the negotiation or what you were asking for, Um, I'm Mm -hmm. also wondering, to what extent did you address how you were feeling? I think in this Zoom era, people sometimes have days where they're not feeling great. And there's kind of a move, whether you're in a training room or at a negotiation, do you say, hey, by the way, I feel awful right now. I want you to know I'm sweating, not because I'm lying, but because I'm not Mm -hmm. feeling great." So I'm I'm just curious to, to hear more about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, on the negotiation itself, um, as I said, like, there were a lot of rumors and conspiracy theories about what was, what the project was. So mm-hmm. we thought that if we could get his support, that that might really help. Um, and he was willing to lend that in different ways. But he also had some, you know, things from a political point of view, right, associating himself with us had some consequences. And so um, we had done a little bit of our homework and had gotten some other people on board before we went to him mm-hmm. to make it easier for him to say yes and to kind of lend some support. And and there were some practical things that he was prepared to do. Um, you know, some of it we wanted him to be a little more out front than he was comfortable with, so he had to sort of decline full on. But but you know, certainly put um, resources and other kinds of things um, behind the effort. know and one of the things that we would say to people is look we know you have skepticism and and concern about this so hang on to it Mm -hmm. and if you see anything that we're doing that you feel like is untoward or not what we've told you then let us know and you know we knew that what we were doing was you know what we were telling people so we weren't and, and i think that's an important part of negotiation right that there's the negotiation process um But then there's the implementation and you've got to, you know, if you're going to say certain things, you know, this is where I think a lot of people fail in negotiation or get themselves into problems is they feel like they can say something to get the deal. Mm -hmm. And then after the fact, um, you know, things don't line up and they end up creating more problems and challenges than it's worth. So we always knew just, and in general, our intention with the project was to try to shine a light on these different areas of the globe that don't get a lot. So we knew that, that, that we could do what we were saying and that we wanted to do what we were saying, that we had every intention of doing that. But like I said, I think it was a good lesson. You know, had we done anything that raised ire or suspicion, um, yeah. you know, we really wouldn't have been able to make any more progress. And in terms of uh, the second question about sweating, um, <laughs> you know, I didn't, it's not, it's, it's not a bad question. I mean, it's a good question actually because I think people read into uh, nonverbals without question in negotiation. So, um, I, you know, I didn't probably because his English, while it was quite good, was not perfect. And I didn't know if, you know, I would be able to sort of explain it in the way that I needed to. So I just sort of thought I would just sort of power on through. Um, but I don't know, it, it, it's actually something that that's worth contemplating a little bit. And I certainly think that perhaps in a US business context or something like that, um, you know, there may be something um, that's worth uh, thinking through that if you're not feeling great, it's worth it to, to make sure you share that so people don't get the wrong sign mm-hmm.
0: or signal. Right? Mm-hmm. And Josh, I'm struck a bit by what I, I feel like might be a lot of work you did before the negotiation. Um, it sounds a little bit like stakeholder mapping, um, how, what, what, if any work did you do in terms of planning the order in which you talk to people and who to get on board before you had this conversation?
1: Yeah. So sequencing was a really important part of what we did. And, and it was, in fact, um, I actually did my PhD dissertation on the issue of sequencing. So I was sort of hypersensitive to that idea. Um, but you know, and there were a lot of layers of sequencing, because when you, you know, when we started this endeavor, I remember meeting with William and talking with him about it and then, you know, him and and, and agreeing to do this. And, and then I remember sitting down, you know, to, to get started and thinking, I have no idea how to begin to do something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we th- sort of talked about, you know, this at, at number at a number of levels and really realized that we needed to start sort of internationally and get some support Mm -hmm. that we could then turn. And, you know, most of the governments in the middle East are very hierarchical in nature and and that people in rural areas um, and towns are not going to do anything without the explicit approval of the government. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really how it works. And and we certainly learned that as we were going. And so, um, so there was a very clear sequence, but I think recognizing and knowing that if you're asking people to stick their neck out, Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want it to be the only one out there. You want it to sure. be out there with others so that they feel like, okay, well, if John is on board, then that mm-hmm. makes it easier for me to sort of say, this isn't just me. Sure. Um, so we did, we did give a, a decent amount of thought to it. And I mean, again, there were the cultural considerations were also really, really significant
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, because that part of the world um, is a place where Kurds and Arabs come together um, and as well as Turks, um, it's an area of the world where there's a very significant Armenian population. At one point, so, but but the culture as well was a very conservative one. It was it was still actually an honor culture, mm-hmm. um, where there were um, uh, fiefdoms and chieftains who were controlling. They're called agas who controlled different areas of the. So there were a lot of negotiations with the agas who controlled the areas where we wanted people to be walking and doing homestays and. Um, so yes, there was a tremendous amount of sequencing that went into it. We didn't always know exactly what it looked like at the beginning, but we were always conscious of, um, you know, of that idea and, and sort of continuing to think, who do we need to get on board? And, and, and to be very frank, we made a lot of mistakes. I, I don't know if it was possible to do this without making mistakes, yeah. um, you know, and, and but, but I think it's a testament to the staying power of the idea. That it's still going, you know, eight seventeen 17 years later. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and has made an interesting impact in the world. And I think, you know, it's a, a bit of a unique project because it tried to sort of go at connecting people as a people to people, cultural diplomacy kind yeah. of endeavor. Uh, that, that, you know, is just quite different than others that exist.
0: Mm-hmm. And something I've heard you say, Josh, that I really like is. Um, that negotiating is something like baseball, meaning that if you have a 300 batting average, one out of three, you're doing really well. Um, and that mistakes are par for the course, even for people like you, which I think is really important for people to hear and that you can always course correct uh, to some extent. Um, yeah. I'm curious in your head, I think for many of the people we've had on the show um, that are trainers, we usually have seven elements and lateral inference in our head. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. as you're navigating Different cultures and specifically this honor culture. um, How do you think about saving face and and navigating those cultures? Are you filtering those through some of our frameworks or do you think about it differently?
1: You know, I am actually a big proponent of the notion that, you know, the interest based approach, the seven elements, I I think are a really core part of any negotiation. Um, However, I think when it comes to cultures, you know, you have to think about how do you get at interests. That's the big challenge because, in some cultures, it's appropriate to ask directly, and others, like where we were, it isn't. And not only is saving face important, I actually just wrote an article for Harvard Business Review on this subject because the cases in the book that you reference, so many of them, if not all of them, you know, people. Um, have to save face. I I mean, I think we all have to save face in every negotiation. Um, People have to be able to walk away and sort of declare victory in some way, shape, or form. Otherwise, they can't agree. Um, So so I think it's a a concept that often is sort of, um, you know, associated, for example, with Asian cultures or many other cultures, when in fact, I think face-saving is something that actually... um, exists everywhere and it's to what degree and what level. So I think the most important thing, for example, in, in that scenario, when you're working in an honor culture is to realize that, that your frame, your way of seeing the world does not apply. And you have to understand that like when, you know, if, if somebody does something that is an offense to the honor of someone else. There is no progress, there is no nothing unless that gets rectified. And you know, unfortunately, in a lot of places, the ways in which those things get rectified are through violence. But yeah. you know, we had some instances where it wasn't necessarily things that we had done, but trying to get people to work together. And there had been some affronts to honor that had happened, and we had to try to think creatively. And I remember sort of trying to push. We had, we had people that we worked with who, I would call sort of bridge people. They were people who, who you know, maybe were from the west but lived in the region. Um, one of the people that we had worked closely with in Turkey married a, a guy from one of the small villages, and so she really under she grew up in England, and so she was critical in all of this. And I remember asking her on a number of occasions, "Are there any examples of scenarios where?" somebody's honor is affronted in the way that we're talking about. And the people have found a nonviolent solution as opposed to a violent one. And I remember one in one instance, she recounted how a chief uh, in of a very long running dispute got everybody together and basically said, look, everybody's got their grievances, um, but we're all going to kind of move on. Like we're going to put this behind us so that we can have a better life and things like that. and, you know, and you're gonna give this guy ten cows and you're gonna you know, and that's gonna be it. And so there was an ability to you know have some of these people higher up on the the sort of chain of command, if you will, of those societies who had the ability to almost offer an edict that says, look, you know, this is over. no one's killing anybody. and you know here's how we're gonna make reparations and then we're gonna move on. So I, I think you learn. it's not easy and and I think you also, Learn that, um, you know, in a lot of places, they don't have those mechanisms. Yeah. Um, and so it, it becomes, you know, and people in some of those places also have means to guns and things along those lines. Yeah. So you have to sort of think about how do you do this, but, but it's possible. But I think the most important thing is that you have to leave your world behind mm-hmm. in in one regard, and just be willing to accept a very, very different reality. Mm-hmm. And I think that that you know, in many ways, I think when you're negotiating cross-culturally, yeah, um, one of the best things that you can do is is simply that is is essentially sort of looking at something and saying, okay, so like, what is it exactly am I that I'm dealing with here? And you know, the tendency when you negotiate cross-culturally is is you have to start generally, mm-hmm. and then you know realize that you're dealing with specifics um, and individuals who don't share all of those sort of norms and other. You know, there's variation within, of course, so- um, but But I do think, you know, sort of your original point, your original question is that I I really do believe that, you know, people have interests um, in that positions and interest kind of way, no matter what. And those manifest themselves in any negotiation. I mean, some go deeper into, you know, values and needs, but, but, you know, in essence, everybody's got an interest. There's something within that negotiation that can be uncovered that is going to be the key. So I still use that framework in most of my negotiations um to, that forms the heart of everything and then i you know think about what's different what's mm-hmm. uh what do i need to build off etc
0: yeah i love that that everyone has interests and how you get at them and your permission or right to ask for them is different according to culture and those relationship communication elements right. um, something that i'm curious about having mentioned honor culture um mm-hmm which seems to have a relationship to violence. Um, And then thinking about guild culture a little bit, which I think roughly you can graph on, I'm thinking about the U.S. now, um, where everything you're talking about, um, combating conspiracy, um, honor and violence are are all part of this. I'm just curious to transition to the stories we're telling in the U.S. as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how you see the relationship between these honor cultures, these guilt cultures and what those stories are and how do you bridge different stories besides your book?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, (laughs) I think it's, uh, you know, I think we're in a very difficult time because I think that, um, that, you know, when we can't agree on sort of, some core basic notions, Mm -hmm. it becomes difficult uh, to to sort of think, how do you go into this? Um, And I do think, by the way, that stories are helpful here Mm -hmm. uh, because, um, you know, when you're you're having conversations with folks that see the world very differently than you, I think one of the best ways to try to help them to understand why it is that you see what you see and you know, is to share an anecdote. I mean, to share a story like I did with Mayor Fakibaba or whatever it might be, um, because I may not agree with you Mm -hmm. and the different things or the conclusions, but at least I understand where you're coming from, like how you arrived at your conclusion. And I think part of the problem is that in our society right now, we're, you know, the purpose of a lot of our conversations, a lot of our negotiations, if you will, Um, is to try to change the other person's mind. And, you know, um, I think people are getting their informations from very, very different places. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you know, before somebody from my view begins to speak, you know, people have preconceived notions of where this is coming from, et cetera. So I do think that stories can help because they humanize. And I think where we have gotten to, is that we are, we've dehumanized each other in a way that makes it easy for us to just dismiss what it is that they're saying as untruthful. Um, It's, you know, it's not easy, but I do think that stories can be a window uh, and a way into difficult conversations that I don't think we think enough about using. Um, You know, so that if, if I'm meeting from somebody from the heartland of the country, And I can share a story of an experience that they can relate to. Mm -hmm. You know, we're now not on such different playing fields. It doesn't mean we're going to be able to solve the issues between us. Yeah. But it does mean that you know, at a minimum, they know I can at least relate on some level, and vice versa. Um, And I think that's you know, my experience is that the hardest part of a conversation is the beginning. Mm. And and Mm -hmm. so if you can find a way in. You know, and 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 especially when people also are pushing back, and they're you know sort of saying um, they're not really listening. Um, and if you can land a story or in that that opens them up a little bit, um, you know, I've found people to be a little more willing to say, "Okay, I get that, I hear that," um, you know, and I can at least understand where you're coming from.
0: Mm-hmm. And in that relationship box it feels like it changes from, if you're a person that is trying to convince another person, it changes from lecturer to student, to a relationship between storyteller and listener, which I think is a lot mm-hmm. more organic um, in terms of the way that we communicate. Um, yeah, a lot less antagonistic. What I'm curious about are just your thoughts um, about the way that we tend to communicate, both in negotiations and in the US. Um, uh-huh because we are so positional, Um, we are so about winning and losing and we try to win so hard that we end up losing value. Um, Our Mm -hmm. goal is not to help the other person save face, it's usually to humiliate them. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm just wondering what, I guess I'm wondering about your approach to teaching negotiation as far as helping people understand the importance of how they say what they're saying versus what they're saying. And, and how to reframe what a negotiation is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know,
1: the way that I try to help people with this is that, you know, I try to put it into their own self-interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for me, you know, when you're thinking about the positional approach to negotiation, you know, that may be something that is, you um, you know, desirable in your one-off negotiations, whether you're buying a house or a car or something like that, right? You don't care about the relationship, so whatever. Um, But what I usually do is I'll say to folks, you know, who I'm either working with as an advisor or if I'm training them, how many of your negotiations are of that nature? Like if you think about the negotiations in your life, how many of them are, you know, that fit that category. And what I typically find is most people will say maybe, or, or at work as well, like how many are one-off kind of scenarios, purchasing something versus, yeah. you know. and usually it's about 10 to 15% of their negotiations fall into that category, maybe. Um, and so, you know, that's when, that's the opening that I need to be able to say, look, if you engage in that kind of negotiation and that kind of an approach to negotiation, um, you're really shooting yourself in the foot yeah. because it's the relationship that's going to help you down the road as you keep working um, and, and keep negotiating over and over again. And so I, I found that that's sort of the best, um, one of the best ways of, of helping people. But the other is, you know, there are a lot of myths related to negotiation. And I find that um, when I'm trying to teach people about this or help them to think it through, I like to try to put those up front because I find that it sparks a conversation. So I'll, for example, say, you know, to me, compromise is a lazy way to negotiate, right? <laughs> yeah. Or something like that. Something that's designed to be very controversial and, and to push people because, you know, most people, I was talking to a woman and sharing that I was writing the book that I that we've talked a little bit about. And she said to me, you know, the best negotiations are where everybody leaves the table unhappy. (laughs) And I said, you know, um, if you have that orientation and that way of thinking, um, guess what's gonna happen? You're gonna be looking for solutions where everyone's unhappy, as opposed to looking for solutions where um, potentially people could be happier and that you can maximize value and things like that. So it's, it's, you know, trying to get at how people think about negotiation And then sort of show them why it's a challenge. And and again, part of the reason that I wrote this book of of cases Mm. was because I find that, you know, sometimes you can speak to your blue in the face and people aren't interested in changing. They've made up their mind, right? But if you tell them a story, you don't have to say, um, here's where I think you might be getting it a little bit wrong, or here's why this might be a little limiting for you. Yeah. They read that story and turn around and say, hmm, I don't negotiate that way. I didn't actually think you could negotiate that way.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and it sounds like like applying creativity is more important than some of these other things. And I'm like, bingo, uh, you know, aha yeah. moment, right? right? So that's why I love stories and I love real cases because you can quarrel with all kinds of things that I'm telling you, but these scenarios happened and so, you know, getting your head around that and what does that say about your approach to negotiation? Yeah. Um, and what are you missing? You know, so it becomes almost a little didactic in yeah. that sense. And
0: I think that's brilliant into showing and not in terms of showing and not telling the lesson, because we know from influence that pushing um, causes pushback. Um, it seems like what you do is the answer to this next question when it comes to writing um, a children's series as well. Um, But I'm curious, generally, because I think there are a lot of brilliant practitioners, um, and at least from my perspective, I have nothing new to add to the field. I just want to amplify it um, and mainstream it in our culture. So it seems like writing children's books is a great way of doing this, but how else can we thread in um, story um, and this more effective didactic way of talking about negotiation instead of game theory?
1: So I remember years ago, I was on a podcast. It was called Pieces Sexy. Okay, cool. And I went on it because I think that that's the right message. That the work that we do is far more interesting than I think most people realize. Um, And we're not very good at telling people about that. Um, And so we need to mainstream this stuff because yep. if we don't then people tend to think of negotiation you know as what they see on television or you know um and i remember watching you know a few different shows like west wing and i'm actually watching designated survivor right yeah. now and and there are a lot of things in there from a negotiation point of view and i'm watching it actually because one of my friends as well as my wife and my daughter said that, you know there's a lot of negotiation in here you should watch it and i'm curious what does that look like? And in fact, I just watched an episode where the president said, you know, I think I I actually can see a solution where neither side needs to give something up. And I thought, ah, okay. So now we're beginning to make a little progress here. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I think what, you know, the field has always suffered from, from not being in the mainstream, from yeah. not pushing ideas and, you know, part of the reason I wrote the book and the way and I wrote it in the way that I did, which is, I wouldn't call it an overly academic book. It's um, try. I tried to write it so that the average person could pick it up and read mm-hmm. these cases and go, "Oh, okay." Um, and I think that that's in part like we have to. You know, there's writing for the field, which is important to advance yeah. new concepts and new ideas. But then we also have to have translators, if you will. Yeah, yeah. That take that. Take these ideas and. Share them broadly with um the world around us in a way that's relatable. And so I think that I mean there's a lot of research that suggests that you know sitting down and talking um, through difficult problems, challenges, et cetera, is not really natural for us. you know our right. our flight or fight kind of mechanisms are still strong. and right. and so, you know and and i I often, you know will' talk to people and when I'm teaching them and And they'll say, you know, um, you make this sound really easy, but like, it's really not. Yeah. I say, it's not my intention to make it sound easy because it's not, there's nothing easy about this. I mean, it's really hard to sit across from someone that you vehemently disagree with and frankly at times, maybe can't even stand the sight of the person and try to find a solution to a difficult problem. Like it's difficult. So I think, but, but I also think that there's a dearth of skills out in the world, which is part of the problem. Like people just don't know how to have these conversations. Um, and I think that's our responsibility, you know, is to sort of say, well, how do we help people do this? Cause if we don't, then, um, you know, we're stuck and, um, And I also think that that sort of goes to leadership a little bit. I think we too often look to political, the Mm -hmm. political sphere for leaders when we really need to be looking at all different levels, you know, to to look for people who are emulating these different ways of approaching things and thinking about things and how they do it differently, you know, and we often will look at people who I would say embody, you know, the interest-based way of doing things with problem solving approaches like Mandela and Gandhi and King and whatever, you know, and, say look at these leaders who were um, so gifted and it's like well they were gifted no question but like the things they did Mm -hmm. are because they also understood negotiation and dealing with conflict and you know and they worked at it and they worked at themselves and you know so um, that's a very long-winded answer to your question but but I think you know it is incumbent on us to you know, if we want people to utilize negotiation, for example, as a first resort, as opposed to other things, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we really need to make it more accessible. Um, And I think we have, Mm -hmm. I think there's been a really big change over the last few years. And, you know, I mean, even if you go back to like President Obama, you know, I think one of his real objectives was to say that when a conflict comes up with another country, you know, we really need to be working the diplomatic angles and the negotiation angles much more than just, you know, resorting to the military angle first. Um, And I think that did a lot of good from a negotiation
0: point of view. There's so much wonderful stuff there. One, you've clarified my life objective in terms of being a translator of this stuff. By the way, I think the tone and not just the person you're speaking to, the tone of the book is wonderful and refreshing to hear stories, um, because I think there's a lot of wonderful theory out there but it's, it feels like what we need are real tangible examples. And especially for people like me that are post Roger Fisher learners, mm-hmm. um, to have the stories as touch points um, for talking about these lessons and to have them like in a single volume is so incredibly helpful because nothing, nothing hits like a story. Um, when you're talking about peace being sexy, which I'm a big proponent of, um, we're also talking are we talking about making military involvement and violence not sexy? because uh, to a degree, it seems like we're competing with that in terms of mainstream culture. I don't know how you see that. Maybe it's part of the same endeavor, but I think, yeah, I, I'm curious how you see that.
1: look, I, I think that I do think that there are times when, you know, the use of force is necessary. Um, uh-huh. it's not, you know, my my view of that is, Is different than others, I think. I mean, I think when you're talking about a genocide or something like that, um, I think, you know, there's no question that you have to stop what's happening before you do things. You know, I guess I'm just a proponent of saying, look, you know, we ought to be trying everything else before we use force. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't often feel that that's the case, you know, and, and, and again, some of the problems and challenges that we're talking about are really difficult and they require um, quite a concerted effort um, to be made. You know, I think a lot of times people view negotiation, they'll say, well, we tried to negotiate, like, well, what did you try to do? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there was an effort, it failed and they moved on. And that to me is not really what negotiation is about. I mean, if you look at um, I mean, honestly, if you look at peace processes in different conflicts, um, you know, most of them are a series of efforts that have failed yep, and yep. then eventually there's a, you know, then these efforts build on each other. So I think part of the problem is that, you know, this is the kind of thing that's difficult and takes time. And we live in a world where if people don't get instant gratification, they don't think things work. So so part of the problem is that what is your hurry? Like, why are you rushing through this negotiation process? You don't get points for finishing first, you get points for finishing um, with the best agreement that meets the needs involved. So like slow down, um, because also, you know, what you learn in negotiation is that information reveals itself as you go. Right. Um, and if you're patient enough to kind of allow that to happen then you can sort of build agreements and other kinds of things in a much better way yeah um, so so I think that's part of the the challenge um, you know and I, I do think there are times when you're dealing with very difficult people or very difficult scenarios where you know there needs to be some consequences um, if you don't reach agreement and you know a lot of times, there aren't, and so people just manipulate or adjust, and and that's where concepts like BATNA become so important and things along those lines. But, but I I believe that um, we ought to be doing everything we can in general to exhaust the negotiated all you know option before we move into any kind of militaristic kind of thing. And, and, you know, it's interesting, like in the book, I have a couple, there's uh, two hostage negotiation cases and a crisis negotiation case. And yeah. and I think in talking to those guys um, and knowing uh, the head of the NYPD hostage negotiation team a bit from the past, you know, what I've learned is that for them, you know, their, their goal is really to try very hard to, to reach some kind of negotiated peaceful outcome. Yeah. Um, and they are willing to stay and work at that um, because they know the consequences, they know the downside, right? So there's a lot of interesting lessons, you know, in there for all of us. Um, but I think it's also just, you know, and I go back to this and say that this is difficult work and but it can be done and it can be done if you learn about it. I think for a lot of people, you know, that the awareness piece is so important and the strategic part is so important. You know, when people, when I ask people, oh, you know, or I tell them what I do, they say, oh, yeah, I'm doing this situation. I'm like, well, how are you planning? I I don't really plan. Like, I just go in and I figure it out. I'm like, well, I can tell you that's kind of a recipe for disaster. um, And that preparation is so important. You know, things like that, I think, you know, and interestingly, if you think about your job, whatever your job may be, you know, we're strategic in most of the things that we do. But when you talk to people about negotiation, it's almost like, ah, oh, I don't need
0: to be strategic there. I can just, you know, intuit right. my way through it. I mean, there's so much there, Josh. One thing that I help, I think is really helpful that you're mentioning is that we're not naturally designed very well, our brains, for mm-hmm. negotiation, right? It, it resists our design, so it requires effort. I've heard you mention um, William Urey's Getting to Guess with Yourself, um, which yeah. I think is a wonderful book as well. and. Know really deals with something that I think is also less sexy to talk about, especially with corporate clients, which is how are you in relation to yourself, and how do you conceive of yeah. yourself as self object? And we talk a lot about um, going to the balcony, which I think is a really simple concept in terms of transcending self and evaluating the best outcome for all the parties. And mm-hmm. that's so easy to say, and at least in my personal experience, so hard to do. Um, you're a person that has not just written about and taught about but actually done these negotiations in the field and i'm wondering either what you do to get to the balcony and or how you talk about it for other people trying to get there
1: yeah i mean look you know the emotional side of negotiation is what is what makes it difficult uh so you know that's that's the challenge and i think You know, one big mistake that a lot of people make is this idea of trying to keep emotions out of negotiation. This just doesn't work that way. Um, And I try to make that point with people by saying, you know, if human beings are logical and emotional creatures, if I told you to keep logic out of negotiation, you would think I was an idiot, right? Right. And and so so you know, it's the same idea that if I were to counsel you to keep emotions out, you know, it's it's not possible, and frankly, it's not good advice. So. So I think the emotional piece is hard. Um, you know, yeah, William's book on getting to yes with yourself, I think was really foundational from my point of view, because I really believe that half of your problems in negotiation are out there with other people. Yeah. And then the other half are within you and the conversations we have with ourselves, how we think about the challenge and things along those lines. And so, you know, psychological aspects of this, while often, ones that can make people sort of want to run away because it means you have to look at yourself and Mm -hmm. understand the way you think and why you think about certain things, as well as the biases that you are subject to on a daily basis that you're unaware of and all of that stuff. All of that is critical to being an effective negotiator. Um, And so you got to turn the mirror in on yourself at some point. And I think, you know, that, so when you know yourself and you know your triggers, Mm -hmm. um, that's when it becomes you know much easier to go to the balcony and to realize that this is the time so you know it's all connected to me you know if i know myself if i know the things that create problems and challenges the things that set me off then when those are arising i can feel them physically my body is sort of tells me and and so the leap to go to the balcony of metaphorically kind of stepping away is not too hard but I think it's it starts with understanding yourself and there are a lot of us that don't really want to do that um, because it's not easy it's hard and it yeah. means being critical of yourself right. um, And so I think that what you have to do is you have to you know the way that I try to help people with this is to say look, we all have these things that set us off mm-hmm. and if you don't know yourself in negotiation, yeah. um, then you're in trouble And you know a lot of people will say, well, you know, they'll translate that and say, well, does that mean like I should never show any emotion or, um, you know, things like that? Like, and I said, you know, you can't, you can't be an effective negotiator and be robotic. It doesn't work that way. Like I, you know, there's a lot of concepts and ideas out there of, you know, never do this or never do that. I mean, first of all, <clears throat> I read something the other day that I loved, which is when you've seen one negotiation, you've seen one negotiation. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah they are so different that you can't ever say never do this and always do that um, because it just doesn't work that way. And so you start there and you say each negotiation requires, you know, preparation It requires different kinds of thinking It requires recognizing what's going on. And so there's an art and a science, what's happening in front of you. Um, And then, um, but I think it's having something simple, you know, that you can draw. And I know for me, you know, when I get triggered, it it's I really you know find it helpful to step away and say what's what's what am I missing here? And this doesn't have to be a long break, um, but even even just to say, can you give me a second to think about it? Yeah, um, because it's you know it's in the moment where I think most of us really are challenged and struggle, and um, and so I you know but I try I guess in in some ways I'm just trying to normalize the process. Yeah, I'm just trying to say you know this is not anything crazy or unique to you, this is something that every, that everybody has to deal with and has to think about. And, and one way to do that, like, you know, we all know when we're triggered, we Mm -hmm. can feel it because physically our body tells you something. So, you know, when that happens, I often will say to folks, when that's, when that's going on for you, when you feel yourself tensing up or your teeth clenching or your face flush or whatever, you know, that's when you need to step away and recognize, okay, like I've got to manage my emotions before they yeah. take me over. Yeah. And you know, managing your emotions means having them. It means recognizing them. It just doesn't mean blowing up as a result of them.
0: So in, in the remaining minutes, first of all, the book of real world negotiations, um, you can get it in any place that that sells, I think, books um, and negotiation <laughs> books. I think it's such an important addition to the canon of of PON HNP publications. Um, I also just want to throw out there. I think Robert Keegan's work has been fascinating in terms of mm-hmm. talking about adult development and that we don't stop um, after Piaget's stages and the ability mm-hmm. to get to the balcony with that. And exactly what you're saying in terms of if we can't own our emotions, they will own us. Thinking about it that way, I have a quote that I'd love your reflection on. Um, and then mm-hmm. I want to. I want you to. Um, I'm going to ask you about about API upcoming projects. Um, there's a quote in Keegan that he takes from Tolstoy, which is that all Happy families are the same, and all unhappy families are miserable in their own way. And I'm curious if you substitute negotiation for that. Given that if you've seen one negotiation, you've only seen one, and there's so many different ways they can fall apart. From your perspective, do healthy negotiations all look alike? No, I don't think so.
1: I think that um, I think that there are principles that I think are helpful. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they all look alike. I think they look different. And I think that's really important um, from where I sit, at least. You know, I think that, you know, and and I think that's, it's an interesting challenge because there's a tendency to engage in transference in negotiation that if you've done, uh, if you had a successful salary negotiation in one instance, you think you're just going to do the same thing, right? And and it doesn't work out that way. um, And you find out the hard way. So I don't think so. You know, and a lot of that is because, it, you know, a good chunk of negotiation is out of your hands. I mean, all the ultimate decision rests with you and the other negotiators, but it it doesn't all sit with you. And that's the challenge or the problem is that, you know, you're working, you have to work with somebody else or other people. And so you could start down the same road, but what I think you find is that, you know, one person's going to do this because of who they are and and the, the other negotiator in a very similar kind of situation may, you know, zag when the other zigged, um, And, and so now you're into a different realm. So I, I I think that that's the best way that I can describe it is that I do believe that every negotiation is different. There are certainly things that help you. Sure. Like, you know, as we talked about the importance of interests sure. um, or, or concepts like face saving and being aware of those. I, I remember, doing a training and a guy came up to me and he's like, you know, you didn't teach me anything new. And I'm like, no, oh, you sat here for eight hours. I'm like, I'm really sorry. And he's like, no, no, no. It's like, I don't want you to misunderstand. He said, this was incredibly valuable because I did a lot of these things, but I didn't do them strategically. And I certainly didn't prepare. And he said, now I'm listening to you. And I'm realizing if I prepare, I can save myself a lot of time. I'll be more thoughtful about how I'm going about things as opposed to just doing things and trying things. Um, so, there you know i have come to the conclusion that you know being a good negotiator is is a, it's a continual journey mm-hmm. there's no end point like when people call me an expert like it makes me uncomfortable because I get it. yeah. I just, because <laughs> yeah. it's like it's a very humbling realm you know right. and again if you go back to your analogy of of a baseball you know if a guy's getting a hit 3 out of 10 times and they're considered great that has to be a humbling sport and I actually played baseball so I know it is yeah. but but the bigger point is is simply that you know this is hard you yeah. can absolutely get better at it and mm-hmm. you can help people get better at it um but yeah. it requires time effort and 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 you know being able to turn the mirror
0: on yourself which is not easy gosh I love your approach and I'm very grateful for saying, I think the thing that is not sexy, which should be, which is I'm a negotiation expert who doesn't feel like an expert because anyone who is a negotiation expert, I think would very um, quickly say like the idea of any person being immune to emotions or understanding how to manipulate a situation in which they don't have control is kind of ridiculous. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm very grateful, not just for what you do but how you do it in that sense. Um, Just to close things out, I hear that if people want more edification, more about, Um, Abraham Path initiative that you're teaching um, an upcoming course that we'd love to hear about.
1: Yeah, so I'm doing um, a little bit of an interesting endeavor. So, um, you know, the Abraham Path is offering a negotiation course that I'm teaching. It's a four-week course uh, beginning in the middle of May, and it's actually sort of negotiation wrapped in the context of the Abraham Path. And so what we're doing is we're going to look at a number of the different peoples and cultures along the path and their approaches to negotiation. But but we're also going to look at other things that are associated with the Abraham path, like the role of walking mm-hmm. um, and, and how can you use walking in your negotiations? How can you understand how walking and other kinds of things like that um, can impact the process? Um, we're also going to talk about the, the importance of story and using story uh, in all of that. So, yeah, it should be a really unique course. It's, a, it's largely asynchronous, so we'll have a, a synchronous session every week. Uh, and so, if people are interested, they can go to abrahampath.org and um, and sign up. There's a early bird rate through mid March mm-hmm. um, of I believe it's $479, which is a pretty good deal for for a month of yeah. of negotiation training and thinking. And and we also have some really interesting exercises that are associated with it, like going and going for a walk yourself and and reflecting on the weeks you know, learnings and and sharing that with uh, the other students in there. So we'd love to have you. And I think it'll be a, a real fun experience. I'm really looking forward to it. And and our goal is that when we can sort of open the path back up um, on the ground, um, that, you know, we'd like to do this kind of a course while we're walking.
0: Amazing. Amazing. So. And um, as someone that's peripheral to a lot of the material that's out there, um an opportunity to have Harvard negotiation in the context of the Middle East with somatic awareness and with others that are drawn to the course as well. I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, Josh, thank you so much for taking the time um, amongst the many hats that you wear. Um, It was so great having you.
1: You're very welcome, Max. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Next episode, we will be rejoined by Gwen as co-host, And we will be talking together with Jody Shire, a pioneer of the Harvard Negotiation Project and one of the creators of the Interpersonal Skills Exercise or the IPS exercise that many of us know and love. You've been listening to Trainer Talk. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us again. And until next time, happy negotiating.